Good evening. This side's more awake than this side. So with this side, gently poke your neighbor. Good evening. It is great to be with you. Okay, anybody here from Iowa? Okay, okay, I just wanted to see who my fans were before we ever start. Afterwards, I would like to know if heaven's in Iowa, and y'all can tell us that. But great to be here. Nothing like starting with a great baseball movie. I like baseball a lot. But I want you to think about it and use that as a springboard as we think about where is heaven? What is heaven? One of the things I want to really emphasize, whether you're here in the room or on by way of the internet in the community, is there are going to be a lot of us this week, four of us, five of us, trying to answer those questions. Those questions are addressed to God. And one of the scariest things in the world is trying to answer a question that is addressed to God. Now, I like movies, and one of my favorite movies is the movie Rudy. Now, I'm going to tell you that if I mention any movies, I only watch edited versions of it. So if I mention a movie, the version I saw didn't have any bad language or anything like that in it. But one of my favorite lines in that movie, in fact, if you go to my Facebook page, you'll see it listed among my favorite quotes, is a scene there where Rudy is talking to a priest, and he's trying to figure out his life and what's happening and why it's happening. And there's a quote there that has really made a difference in my life. And he said, in 35 years of ministry, I've learned two incontrovertible things. There is a God, and I'm not Him. And I want you to realize that as we go through this, as the five of us wrestle with these questions, we don't claim in any way to be God. All we're going to try to do is look and see what we see in God's Word, what God seems to be saying about these topics, because we're searchers too. We're asking these same questions. We're wrestling with them ourselves. And what we're going to do is share some things we're seeing in our journeys, in our asking and seeking to answer those questions. And what we want to do is challenge you to keep on studying, to keep on searching. This is not the end of a conversation. This is the first statement at the beginning of a conversation. And so with that in mind, let's think about this idea of heaven. What is it? Where is What, what is heaven all about? It's interesting as we think about heaven and you think on focusing on you know, the gates and, and going there someday... In the Old Testament, in the ancient world, in the Old Testament, they didn't talk about heaven a lot. You don't have a lot of discussions of heaven. In fact, you know, you have references to the realm of the dead. They use the term or word sheol to describe the realm of the dead. And often when it's referred to, it's usually often referred to in a negative sense or maybe just a, a period of inactivity or a period of rest. But you don't really have these glowing discussions of heaven. You don't, you don't have passages technically generally talking about you know, streets of gold and stuff like that. We get into the Greek and Roman culture. It was a very negative view of the afterlife. And, and we found copies of some of their ancient letters. And when they wrote about death or the death of a loved one, it's just basically resignation. Well, this is a part of life, so we just have to deal with it and go on. You don't really see a picture and a message of hope beyond this life. If we were to step into the Jewish culture, they actually argued over the afterlife. 
The two leading religious groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees had the political power, the Pharisees had the people power and the largest number of followers, and they fought over the afterlife, and they fought over whether there was a resurrection. And the Sadducees didn't believe there was anything next. There was nothing after. And, and so it shouldn't surprise us that when we look at how they lived their lives, the, the Sadducees, excuse me, were consumed with power and money and prestige. The Sadducees were because the Sadducees didn't believe in anything next. The Pharisees did believe in an afterlife. The Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife. So the Sadducees were, even though they were the religious leaders, they made up the priesthood and they filled the position of the high priest. They were greedy and self-centered and world-centered. Why? Because they didn't think there was anything next. You see, my view and your view of eternity, our view of heaven will ultimately impact how we act in this life. And even in the general Jewish culture, they thought of reward and God's blessings and their own Messiah, not in terms of something that would happen beyond the borders of this life, but in terms of something that happened in this life. And Jesus is going to come and change all of that. You know, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who've gone to sleep. Because he didn't want us to be like those who are without hope. In 1 Timothy, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10, it says, Jesus brought life and immortality to life and light through the gospel. Jesus, if you will, put heaven on the map. And he put the afterlife on the map and immortality on the map. As he began to speak of our great reward in heaven, and apostles like Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 spoke of our inheritance that's laid up in heaven. And I want you to realize, I think we may miss the fact that a lot of what Jesus said went counterculture. It went against the hopelessness of the Greek and Roman culture, and it went against the earth-centeredness of the Jewish culture. In Jesus' steps, it starts giving us a vision of our reward not being earthbound. You think about the law of the Old Testament, and a lot of the promises and the rewards that went along with it were earth-centered. Okay, honor your father and your mother and you'll live long in the land of Canaan. You'll get to keep the land that God has promised to you. He says, if you keep my laws at the end of Leviticus, at the end of Deuteronomy, he says, your crops will produce, your children will do well, your enemies will be conquered. And if you do not keep my laws, then all of those things will be reversed. And so they grew up in a, an earth-centered reward. And then Jesus says, that's not the reward we live for. We press, as Paul says, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what tonight is all about. As we try for a few minutes to wrestle with the eternal realm, wrestle specifically with heaven, and do the best we can, as time will allow, to, to hit some highlights on four key questions. The biblical bullseye I want us to focus on, what I want you to hang on to, is that it's a person, not a place. Hang on to that. I'll come back and explain to you what I mean by that. It's a person and not a place. There are four things I want us to try to do, darts, if you will, that I want us to throw at that bullseye, and we'll cover as many as we can in the time we have. 
As we focus on those four things, I want us to wrestle with, you know, what is heaven? Who is going there? A little bit about what we might be like when we get there. And then who is there? Not who's going there, but who is there. So with that in mind, let's begin by talking about what is heaven? Is there any insight into God's Word, into what heaven is like? Now, first of all, the word heaven is used in Scripture to refer to different things. Sometimes it is used to refer to the atmosphere that we breathe. Sometimes it is used to refer to what we call outer space, where the planets reside. But then it is often used to refer to the place where God dwells, the dwelling place of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And it's that latter sense of the word heaven that we're going to focus on. You're also going to find that in Scripture, it's consistently referred to as being up. Now, we need to recognize that we need to take that in the context of the fact that we live on a round planet. And up changes depending on where you're standing on the planet. But that doesn't change the fact that consistently in Scripture, heaven is referred to as something that is up. Now I want us to begin our exploration of what heaven is by going to John chapter 14. My guess is you've seen or heard this passage at many funeral services. John is my favorite book in the Bible. And John is a fascinating person because John was one of Jesus' closest friends. When he was trying to describe himself, he just said, I'm, I'm loved by Jesus. I'm the disciple Jesus loves. He doesn't say he's the only one. In fact, refers to Jesus loving others. But he felt love so keenly, that's just the best way he knew to describe himself. And you've got something important going on in John chapters 13 through 17. It's the night before the cross. The world is literally going to be turned upside down for these 12 followers and closest friends of Jesus. How do you prepare them for their world being torn apart? And so what he does is he's going to proclaim to them that he's going to die, not what they expected. They were expecting him to set up an earthly kingdom. We can go to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. They're still, right before Jesus ascends back into heaven, still expecting an earthly kingdom. They expected a Messiah who was going to get on a literal throne in the literal Jerusalem and rule literally right here from earth. Well, now Jesus starts proclaiming He's going to die. He tells them He's going to be parted from them. This is rocking their world. It is pouring, if you will, we can use the expression, God out of the little box that they put Him in, or the Messiah out of the little box that they had put Him in. And what He's doing is trying to get them ready for everything they thought they knew and thought they believed changing so that they can line up with what's really God's plan and what the Messiah is here to do. As they're dealing with His death, then I think maybe some things are said to them that can help us deal with life after death for us, whether it's our own or whether it's somebody else's we're facing or that we're dealing with. And what He's going to stress to them is the key to getting through what's ahead is love and faithfulness and the presence of God. And what he's going to emphasize in chapters 14 through 17 is the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is going to tell them about something he's doing while he's away that's all about their being together. In John chapter 14, 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to bring you to myself. He says, I'm going to my Father's house. Now, Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56, as Stephen is dying, he tells us that Jesus went to be with the Father in heaven. And there, Stephen is dying. He sees Jesus, he says, in heaven at the right hand of God. So in John chapter 14, Jesus is saying, I'm going to where my Father is and in his house. Now, you may have a translation that says, In my Father's house are many mansions. The better translation of the word that's used there is room or habitation or dwelling places. And understanding their culture might help it to make a little bit of a sense to us. I remember when I, I, when I got out of undergrad, I went and lived in Israel for the summer. And I got to do a lot of traveling around and visiting with both Arab and Jewish Christians while I was there. And what I learned in both of those cultures is that it was fairly common... Uh, just as it was 2,000 years ago, for when a young couple got married, the son, instead of going and maybe necessarily getting another house, he would often just build a room on to the family home. For example, in the first century or in the Jewish culture, when you got married, you and your bride just built a room onto the family house, and another son built another room onto that, and so on and so on. And so what Jesus is doing is playing on that cultural habit and saying, in my Father's house, there's plenty of rooms. All His children can add on and add on and they can add room after room after room. He's got room for the whole family. But the emphasis I want us to think about as He talks about that is the idea is that it is a place. And I also want us to realize that it is a place that is not this earth. Is this heaven was the question that John asked. Ray's answer was no, it's Iowa. Now he's going to go and say, well, maybe it is heaven if it's a place where dreams come true. And there may be some dreams that come true while we're on this earth. But the ultimate dreams based into God's ultimate purpose for us can only happen when we're back with him. The point is that when Jesus went to heaven, to his father's house, he left earth to go to where his father was. Jesus would say in John chapter 18, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would rise up and fight. I want us to understand that Jesus' plan was never to have heaven on earth. His plan was never to have a physical kingdom on earth. Yes, to have a spiritual kingdom embodied on earth in what we call the church, and that's another lesson. But nowhere in Scripture does it say that Jesus is going to set first on foot on earth when He comes back or set up some kind of earthly kingdom or reign on a literal throne. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as it's talking about the return of Jesus, it says, He will come down, we will rise up, the dead will rise up first, and then those of us who are alive at His coming will join Him where? Not on earth, but the text says, will join Him in the air. I do understand that Revelation chapter 20 speaks of those who are martyrs for Christ, 
who he says called out from under the throne in the picture there in Revelation. They, it says in Revelation chapter 20, will reign with him a thousand years. But according to Scripture, in places like Acts chapter 7, verse 55, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, make it clear that Jesus is already reigning right now. He is already reigning at the right hand of God. In fact, to say that you're the right hand of the king was a, a phrase in their language to say that you are co-regent. You are king. You are ruler. So he's already reigning. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that when Jesus comes back, he's not going to set up an earthly kingdom and start reigning. When he comes back, he's actually going to stop reigning. He's going to turn the kingdom over to the Father. There will be judgment and then eternity with God. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 tells us that this current earth is going to be burned up and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. According to 2 Peter chapter 3 as well as places like Revelation chapter 21. Now mentioning Revelation chapter 21 brings us to the place where there's the most lengthy discussion of heaven. Now I want to emphasize something. As we're wrestling with what heaven looks like, any folks here in the audience done some reading on heaven before? Have you studied and done some reading in your Bible on heaven? Have you noticed, are there a lot of places where it just gives you all kinds of detail? I want you to really think about that. There's, there's not. There are not a lot of places we have hints, we have allusions to it, but we don't have many places in Scripture where it really gives us much detail. The one place where it gives us a lot of detail is here in Revelation chapter 21. Now, as we think about what he says here, and he's talking about a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, we need to think about what's happening in the context of the book of Revelation. It's important to recognize that the book of Revelation is a book written in symbolic language. They use the word apocalyptic language. It's not a word that we used every day. But it's a language that involved the use of symbols and outlandish statements to let God's people, when they were undergoing periods of persecution by foreign powers to let them know that it was going to be okay and that God was going to come in the clouds and bring judgment on this power, this, this country, this nation that was oppressing them. That's the language that Revelation is, fit in, is, is written in. It, it matches parts of books like Isaiah or Daniel or Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And sometimes we look at it and we're kind of freaked out by the way it's written. But those who knew the Old Testament and had read Ezekiel, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, he's just talking about the same stuff in the same language. It is a symbolic language, rarely intended for the symbols to be taken literally. They always represent something else that is literal, but rarely do they in and of themselves, are they a literal thing. So when I see it speaking of a dragon, I'm not necessarily looking for a literal dragon. Okay, if that's what's going on here, why does that complicate our discussion? It means that the one place in the Bible where it tells us the most about heaven, it's written in symbolic and figurative language. Where maybe, or maybe not, everything in it is literally talking about exactly what it's going to look like. In the book of Revelation, you begin and end with Christ with His people. He begins with His churches... He ends with His people in heaven. In the middle, I think it's about God's judgment on Rome 
and those who oppress God's people. When we get to chapters 21 and 22, he has said that God will judge the dragon and God will judge the beast and God will judge the false prophet and God will bring down Babylon. And then he gives this beautiful picture of God with his people. And we need to remember as we're reading this, it is written to people who are being persecuted. And I don't think that's something that most of us can understand or relate to. I think about a man that I met in India who was once stoned for his faith. I've never been stoned for believing in Jesus. I think about some folks that I met in Israel who were ostracized by their families. I think of some Arab Christians. When they became Christians, they were completely cut off from their families. I think of some, some Jewish and Arab families in Israel who were cut off from their families. I think about a young lady from Panama who became a Christian. And when she got back home from expressing her faith in baptism, her luggage was out by the street. Her family didn't want her anymore. John is writing to people who are dying for their faith, who are losing everything they have. This imagery is designed to give them hope. So as we think about heaven and what's next and what it looks like, I want it to give us hope, but I want us to realize what he's talking about, what he's saying. He says there's a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, starting there in verse 1. And you've got, what you, he's doing two things there. He's, first of all, using a lot of imagery from the Old Testament. For example, he talks about there in verse 3, the tabernacle of God is among his people. And if we were to go back to the Old Testament... The tabernacle was where God dwelt among His people and in His people and with His people. And so what He's doing is He's playing on that imagery saying, in essence, you right now are being torn apart as families. You're being persecuted for Christ. And as you're being persecuted and, and you're being thrown into prison, as your loved ones are being fed to the lions in the great arena, you may feel like God is a long way from you. That God doesn't notice, that God's not there. But He says, I'm here to tell you that there is a coming time when you will dwell in the tabernacle of God. You will be in the very presence of the Creator. And nothing that happens to you right now is going to change that. And you've got all of this imagery from the Old Testament. For example, there are a lot of things that are found in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 3 that are found here in Revelation chapter 21 and Revelation chapter 22. I'm not going to get into the significance of each one of those, but I want you to realize what he's doing as he talks about the heavenly realm. He's trying to piece together all of God's message, all of God's revelation, all of what God is doing. From Genesis to Revelation, God has a plan. And the plan all along has been for God to be with His people. And so he's tying back to that original story of God with His people. People in harmony with each other and people in harmony with God that we saw back there in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. He also pulls a lot of imagery out of Isaiah. And in particular pulls a lot of imagery out of the book of Ezekiel. And in particular in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel gives a picture of God's coming judgment on Israel because they rejected God. 
And he shows this picture in chapter 10 and following of God's Spirit, God's presence, leaving the temple where it dwelt. But then he ends the book by saying there will be a new temple and God will come back into Jerusalem. God will come back into the midst of his people when they renew their love for him. Why does that matter to us? Because what he's doing in Revelation is he pulls a lot of that imagery from Ezekiel's vision and he talks about it in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. He's saying, you remember what Ezekiel said was going to happen? You remember what Ezekiel said about you as a people, then in that case talking about Israel, how you're going to be separated from God and go through some period of captivity because you rejected God? God doesn't leave His people. There's a coming temple. There's coming kingdom. There's a new Jerusalem in which God will dwell with His people. And John the Revelator ties into that in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. He's saying God keeps His promises. That God is there even at moments and times in life when we don't realize that He's there. And it also says in connection with this new Jerusalem and this beautiful picture of the eternal kingdom, He says there will no longer be any death. As I think about what heaven is like, one of the most beautiful things to me is that there people will never die again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, The last enemy that will be defeated when Jesus lays down His crown and turns the throne over to the Father is death. My suspicion is that everybody in this room has lost somebody dear to them. I know that I speak for David and Philip and Tim and others the countless times we've been by somebody's bed when they left this life. Whether it was in a home or on the side of the road or whether it was by a hospital bed. We've been there when you're trying the best you can just to hug to men broken hearts. You can't take away the hurt. Just trying to be a presence. Just trying to love. I look forward to the day when I don't have to cry by any bedsides anymore. I'm looking forward to the day when I don't have to comfort families ever again through a funeral. I'm looking forward to a place where nobody dies. What is heaven? Heaven is a place where death dies. But also heaven is a place where He'll wipe the tears from our eyes and there'll no longer be mourning or crying or pain. Have you seen some hurt in the world? I think about traveling the streets of India and seeing people living on the streets, living in cardboard boxes. I think of children in Panama who slept on the streets with stones for a, for a pillow and with a piece of plastic or tarp for their covering. I think of the children crying in the night in orphans' homes around the country are those children who would give anything to be in one because they haven't eaten in so long and their shriveled stomachs are crying out for something. I am longing for a place where people don't hurt anymore, where people aren't sad anymore, where people don't cry anymore, where children like my little niece who walks with the help of braces and can only walk after years of surgeries don't have to do that anymore. I'm looking forward to a day when little girls like Gabby Cook don't have to have new livers and don't have to have cancer treatments and don't have to be held to wipe away the tears by their parents in the night. That is what heaven is. And that's one of the reasons that I want to go. As it gives us some imagery of heaven, I want to just mention a few things and then we're going to move on. 
He gives us a picture of the city. And again, this is in symbolic language. He talks about a great high wall and 12 gates and the 12 tribes, the names of the 12 tribes being used and the name of the 12 apostles being used, probably signifying that all of God's people in both Old Testament covenant and New Testament covenant will be a part of this city. It's described as a city of 1,500 square miles. That's three-fourths of the size of the United States. If it were talking about a literal city, it would engulf the Middle East if we were to take it and bring it down over top of the Middle East. As it describes the wall, it's a wall of jasper, a foundation made of numerous precious stones with, with 12 gates, three on each side, and each of those gates made of, of, of pearl. Streets made of gold and a city made of gold. It is a beautiful, beautiful picture. It's basically the writer saying, let me take all the most beautiful things that I can think of on this planet and describe what it's going to be like in the heavenly realm. Again, this is imagery. Will it be a literal pearl gate? Will there be literally a golden street? Will there literally be precious stones in the foundation? I don't know. My suspicion is, is it'll be better than gold. My suspicion is, it'll be better than pearl. My suspicion is, it'll be more beautiful than jasper. But it, again, you're tr it's God trying to explain His realm to us with all we have to describe it by. You think about sometimes maybe trying to explain something to a small child and you have to boil it down to very simple terms. That's the picture I get in John chapter 21 and 22. It's God saying to frail fallen human beings, let me just give you a hint of what it's like. It's better than anything you can imagine. But here, see if this helps. And as you look at the descriptions of the city, it has beautiful symbolism. It is a picture of the presence of God. The city is cubed. It's perfectly squared, just like the most holy place in the temple. And it says God's presence is there, unending and eternally. It says that it has many gates and it's great size, so there's room for everyone. And once you get there, you're protected with these great high walls, with a firm foundations, with angels protecting the gates. You have this beautiful picture of beauty as it takes all the most beautiful things in this world to describe it. It's a place where pain cannot go. And I want you to think about it. As we think about what it means to us, I want you to think about what it would have meant to its original readers. What it would mean to a person who's torn away from their home and their family. To a person that maybe had seen loved ones marched into the arena to be fed to the lions. And as they had wept the tears and they had seen the pain, as they had experienced the ugliness and the impurity of a Roman dungeon, I want you to think about what it would mean to those Christians who first read Revelation to get a picture of a city of beauty and purity, of the presence of God, of holiness forever. And then when you get to chapter 22, much of the imagery that is there is it talks about the tree of life and the river of life. He's just going back to the book of Genesis. And basically what he's saying is, is God is fixing what we messed up. All of those things that we made ugly by sin in Genesis 1, or in Genesis 3 through 11, will not be in heaven because no evil or abominable thing can go there. And that leads me to the question of who can be there. If we look over in Revelation chapter 21, it says no abominable or evil thing can be there. If we look at Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that narrow is the way that leads to eternal life and few will be 
who find it. And Jesus says those who find it, those who can have that eternal life, those who will be in heaven, are those who obey and listen to the words of the Father. If we look in John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus just said prior to that, as he's talking about his father's house, he says, you know the way to where I am going. And they said, Father, we don't know where you're going or much less the way. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So the point is, who's going to go there? It's going to be those who are in Jesus Christ. If we look in 1 Peter chapter 1, there it says, we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ with an inheritance that we have through faith. In John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus says, Except you believe in me, you will die in your sins. In Galatians chapter 3, and verse 26, it says, You're sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Then he goes on to say in verse 29 that if we are Christ, then we are heirs according to the promise. The inheritance that's laid up in heaven is ours. If I put my faith in Jesus Christ, who's going to be there? It's not going to be those who deserve it because none of us deserve it. None of us are worthy of it. The only ones who will be there are those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and have done what God has asked them to do and have expressed their faith in baptism. What will it be like there? Have you ever thought about that? Have any of you ever seen the Ice Age movies? Okay, do y'all remember the one where Scrat dies? He's that little squirrel that's always after the nut. Okay, and then when he dies, it shows him going through the gates of heaven. And you know what he's doing? You think about in our video clip about the baseball player that thinks of heaven as the baseball. Scrat thinks of it as a giant acorn. But what's interesting, do you notice what he's doing? He's jumping around from cloud to cloud. And have you ever pictured heaven that way? Is it, I'm going to be kind of just like a ghost, like a spirit. I'm just going to kind of be hovering around. It might be kind of cool to hover. But then I'm going to be floating on a cloud. And a lot of our movies have that kind of imagery. Yet when I look in Scripture, it says I'm going to have a body. In fact, if I look in Romans chapter 8... It says, as Christians, we have the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God. And it says, if we have the Spirit of God, it says, the same Spirit that raised Jesus will raise our bodies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, our bodies are going to be raised. It says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the eternal kingdom. Flesh and blood, my body, just like it is now, can't go into heaven. But 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 8 say, I'll get this body back. My body will be resurrected and my soul and my body will join again. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, when Jesus comes back, my body is going to be resurrected and it will go through a change to enable it to inhabit the eternal kingdom. So I understand that it's going to go through a change, but it's still a body. I am not a shapeless mass just floating around on a cloud. In Philippians chapter 3, it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity to the body of His glory. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, it says, We don't know what we'll be like, but here's what we know. 
We will be like Him. I don't know exactly what I'm going to look like, but I am totally good with looking like Jesus. Have you lost some loved ones before? Will we know them in heaven? Because one of the problems we look at it, if Revelation 21 says there's no tears there, then can we know each other? Because if I get to heaven and some loved ones are not there, then I'm going to shed some tears because people I love are not there. And so some would say, we don't know each other in the next realm. Yet when we look at Scripture, that's not the picture I get. In fact, in Scripture, it emphasizes relationships. And we talked about that in our last lesson. In Scripture, it emphasizes loving each other. And Jesus says, by this, you'll know, people will know if you're really my followers, if you love each other. Well, if we're supposed to be created for relationships, and love is to embody our existence because we're created by a God who is embodied by love, then does it make sense that we would no longer know each other and would lose the relationships and the love we've shared prior to that? And when we see glimpses of people who have died in this physical life, folks like Moses and Elijah in Luke chapter 9, or the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, the people of Nineveh who will rise up in the judgment in Matthew chapter 12 and speak out against those who are around Capernaum. When we look at Jesus' own resurrection in places John, like John chapter 20, all of them retain their personalities. They still have their identities. In fact, in places like Philippians 4 and elsewhere, Paul regularly talks about the fact, he says, when I get to heaven, my joy and my crown, what's going to make me happy is that you, you Christians that I converted and that the churches I worked with, you're going to be there. It's hard to imagine then that Paul's who's so excited about saying, Lord, look, the church at Philippi is here. Lord, look, the church at Thessalonica is here, if he doesn't remember them anymore. The whole picture in Scripture is of our knowing each other. Now, understanding that Revelation 21 says there'll be no pain there and there'll be no sorrow, there has to be some kind of adjustment of my memory for me to deal with the fact that there will be loved ones who are not there. But I fully believe that I'll recognize the ones who are there. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is writing to people who are afraid their loved ones would miss the return of Jesus. And his whole point is they're going to meet Jesus first. They're not going to miss out, and you're going to join them. Now, that whole argument makes no sense if we're going to join Jesus and none of us are going to know each other. Because the whole point of the question in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is that we'll know each other and we'll know Jesus. But here's what I want you to remember. Who's there? Because remember, the Bible doesn't say a lot about it, what it looks like. In the one place it tells us what it looks like, it's in symbolic language. And so it leaves as many questions as it gives me answers. But in John chapter 14, when Jesus was talking about heaven, He didn't focus on, here's what it looks like. Here's what the streets are like, and here's what the gates are like. He says, let me tell you who's there. He says, the Father is there. And I will be there. And he says in John chapter 17, Father, I want them, my followers, to be with me and you there. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, We'll meet Jesus in the air, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and die is gain. And he says, What I want is to depart and be with Jesus Christ. 
My family just went on a vacation for my parents' 50th anniversary. And they talked about, where do you want to go? And I said, I don't care as long as we're together. I love getting to travel the world and tell people about Jesus. I hate being away from my family. You know what's going to be one of the joys of heaven for us, David? As we're together forever. It's who's there that makes the difference. The Apostle Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he spent the rest of his life trying to get back to Jesus. And all through the Bible, they spend less time talking about what it's going to be like and more about who's there. And it's kind of like, okay, I'll go wherever you want. You can put me in a shack in the middle of the desert. Just put Jesus in there with me. In Exodus chapter 33, God told the children of Israel after they'd built the golden calf, said, you go on into the promised land and I'll send my angel and he'll defeat all your enemies, but I can't go with you because you've rejected me and you've worshipped this calf. Moses answered, Lord, if you don't go with us, then don't take us up from here. Why do I want to go to heaven? Because the one who climbed on a cross and let them spit in his face, put crowns on his head and spikes in his hands is there. And I want to hug his neck. And that is what heaven is to me. Great, thanks very much. A lot of people are chiming in. We got a lot of great questions. We're also really short on time. So I want to hit you with one. A lot of the questions that we're getting are kind of bleeding into another one of our topics about judgment. So I'll try to save those for later in the campaign. We'll get to those another night. But I did get this one. I thought this was worth a lot of, a lot of more sharing, but this one was great. Can we sin and be cast from heaven once we're there? The whole picture there in Revelation chapter 21, for example, is of the high gates and so forth is of permanence that we can count on God. God doesn't take away a gift He's promised to us. And so I know of no evidence in the Bible uh, that once we're there, we'll leave. That's the answer I have. I don't, I don't know of a single text that would lead me to believe. Kind that. of a scary thought, so it's a good yes. thing. Clear that one up. Uh, appreciate Joe Brown who sent that one in. Uh, this is another one. This was a, a really great comment that was related to what you're talking about. It comes from at Lisa Gale on Twitter. Uh, she says, I want to meet my ancestors that died before I was born. I hope that we'll know them too. Well, I, I firmly believe that we'll know each other. Um, you think about, you talk about your previous question and tying into this. In Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Paul talks about the fact that the reason we have confidence in our eternal reward is because it was promised by a God who cannot lie. And God doesn't break His promises. And, and I combine that with the fact that Jesus is going to be there and that I'll know my loved ones there. That makes all the difference for me. Awesome. Thanks so much for interacting with us. Keep the stuff coming. It's great. Great questions, great comments. We'll do our best to